for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Deuteronomy 21. I'm going to begin by reading verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 22, says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of His Word today. We're in a series entitled Shaped. It's a series where we're walking through the book of Deuteronomy and we're talking about how God, through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, shapes our life to live in His mission for glory. And so we've talked about the foundation and we looked at all of the the aspects and the sermons that Moses lays out in the beginning. And for the last several weeks, we've been walking through what they call the legal code of Deuteronomy. We've just talked about all these laws that are written there and recorded there. And how is it that they have any application to us as Christians today? I mean, it's the Old Testament after all and it's law and, and aren't we under grace? And the point of that is, yes, we are under grace, but the law is not obsolete for us. As a matter of fact, it points us to the one who is the grace giver for us. And so that's where we are today. As we look at this passage of Scripture today, and as I move back up in my notes where I should be, I want to begin by explaining a little bit about this sermon because uh, it's a burdensome sermon from my perspective, just to be quite honest just because of the nature of the content. It's hopeful, and I think you'll see that towards the end, but this sermon is not an easy one to preach. I don't believe it's an easy one to hear and receive if you take it for what it truly means. And at first glance, this law in Deuteronomy, you can pretty easily go, well, I didn't see anyone hanging on a tree as I drove to church this morning, so it must not have anything to do with us. But it actually does have much to do with us. This law holds great importance for each of us today. And in order to understand its importance, I want you to understand what's taking place. And so know that in the first part of the sermon, I'm going to teach through explaining God's curse over sin. And then I'm going to talk about three lessons that show how the curse of God on sin is broken for us. And then the second portion of the sermon, I'm going to come back and I'm going to show why it matters. I'm going to show how Jesus as our curse bearer changes everything. And why it's important for us to understand this law, not for the sake of understanding, but for the sake of salvation. Amen? Here's what I want you to see today. Jesus bore our curse 
that we might receive his righteousness and enjoy life with God. Jesus bore our curse that we might receive his righteousness and enjoy life with God. You see, what Moses does in verses 22 and 23 is that he addresses a situation that the people are going to be confronted with when they move into the promised land. That's what all of these legal codes or laws are written for, to tell these people this is what it looks like to live for Jesus when you walk into the new land. And so the, the, the situation that he describes is the situation of a criminal execution. The man was convicted of a crime that was punishable by death, and subsequently he was put to death. And so following his death, his body was then hanged on a tree. They did this in order to publicly shame the criminal and to shame the crime itself. And it served as a warning to deter others. Now, understand this. Moses is not advocating this practice. He's simply saying you're going to encounter it when you go into the land, and you need to understand what is appropriate in your conduct when it does happen. And he simply says that the body should not remain on the tree into the night or overnight, because when it does, it defiles the land. And the land you're living at is the place where God has blessed you and given that to you. You shouldn't do anything to defile that place. And so what the law does is it places a limitation on the use of this practice, which is a gracious thing. The second important item is not only historically how the law was applied, but theologically how we need to understand it today. And this is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. We need to understand the value of this law's limitation on the practice. You see, dead bodies exposed would mean desecrating God's land. It also means this, and this is one, what I call an immediate application. Just a surface level, one thing that we can understand is this, that, that how the body is regarded and how the body is treated, even in death, even by the worst of criminals, matters for Christian. There is a biblically acceptable practice for how we honor the body because it is created in the image of God and we understand it that way. And we know that human beings are created in the image of God. Therefore, the body should be treated with dignity, even in death. Even the death of a criminal who was executed because of his crime. And so we have this first takeaway, if you will. But when we get into the theological use, we see this. That Deuteronomy 21-23 states, a hanged man is cursed by God. A hanged man is cursed by God, not cursed by God because he hung on a tree, but rather hung on a tree because he was cursed. And so the curse justified the death sentence. He was cursed because he broke a law that was worthy of the penalty of death. We understand that in our world today. One commentator explains it in further explanation this way, that to break the law of God, and to live as though he did not matter or exist was in effect to curse God. And he who cursed God would be accursed of God. And so the hanged man was cursed because he cursed God by breaking the law in his sin. So we understand why he was hanging on a tree. 
Sin simply means breaking God's law and denying Him glory. Sinners are lawbreakers, and lawbreaking means cursing God. So God curses sin because it defames His glory and it denies His existence. And the one who sins experiences God's curse, hence the one who was hanged on the tree that he refers to here. And the one who lives in sin lives under God's curse. Why? Because all sin is cursed by God. We don't typically think of God in these ways, but the Bible very clearly explains to us that this is our problem, the problem of sin. You see, when you live in sin, and every time you sin, you live as though God neither matters nor exists. Let that soak in for a moment. You say, oh, mine's not that bad. That statement right there denies his presence, denies his power, and denies that he matters for life. Why? Because when we deny that we have sin, we do what? We deceive ourselves, First John says. We make God out to be a liar. So the question that we must ask today is this. What does it mean to be cursed by God? What does it mean to be cursed by God. When was the last time you had a, a conversation with somebody that said, well, I'm, I'm cursed by God? <laughs> well, I mean, you may not have to think highly of yourself, but you don't necessarily have to think that way about yourself, right? But the Scripture teaches this is true. You see, when we curse something, it really doesn't affect the one that we curse. Oh, sure, the New Testament is quick to, to remind us that it's wrong to slander people. It's wrong to... Uh, um, um, to, to gossip and to, to speak with envy in our words towards others. But at the end of the day, if that person doesn't allow, allow our curse of them to affect them, it can have no effect on them. Because we neither have the authority or the, the power to affect that curse upon them. But it does matter for us. It matters because it just simply compounds our heart and our spirit and our mind and our soul with the darkness with which we utter. But it doesn't really matter for others unless they allow it to. You see, this is why when we want to curse in its strongest form, whose name do we incur? God's. The name of Jesus. Or some form of their power. You see, cursing towards others means nothing ultimately, but it only reveals sin's darkness within us. But when God curses, it affects everything. God cursed sin in Genesis 3, both in its presence and its effects within creation. That's why Paul goes on to say that all creation groans groans awaiting for the redemption and the reconciliation with Christ. God's curse on sin, it really has three effects or three ways in which sin affects us. And so when God cursed sin, He caused the effect to be put up on that curse. And we see that effect come as an effect of us. And I want to show these to you quickly so you can understand God's 
curse and how it matters. I'm going to turn, and you don't have to do this. Um, uh, you can just listen. But in Romans chapter 1, it tells us, if I can get there, should have marked it. It tells us this, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Here's what I want you to see. First of all, that the first way that the curse of God on sin affects us is that the curse means in sin we reject God's power and we reject his wisdom. Paul says the invisible attributes of God, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. And yet, we reject them because of the curse. Let me give you just a couple of simple ways that the effect of the curse in rejecting God's power and wisdom is displayed in our world today. And these are large-scale uh, examples or illustrations. First of all, you have the arguments for alternative creation narratives where God's power is completely rejected. God's wisdom is completely rejected. And uh, uh, Proverbs clearly tells us it was the wisdom of God that established the foundations for all that is. But when we create alternative narratives for creation, we deny and reject God's power and wisdom in that creation. So we're trying to figure out how two big objects collided and created everything. And we're asking, where did those two big objects come from? I saw a picture come across Facebook this weekend. It was a picture of Adam and Eve with belly buttons. That's problematic. Where did those come from? Some of you are going to get that at lunch today and you're going to laugh. And then you're going to go, oh my goodness, where did they come from? The chicken or the egg, but we're not talking about chickens and eggs right now. Another way that this is illustration, illustrated in our world today is the rationalization for abortion. When you listen to the ways that it's rationalized, we can take the life of a helpless babe and rationalize for our own convenience, our own comforts or pleasures, that that life has no value or worth in this world. Another way that we reject God's power and wisdom because of the curse is that we believe, hear me, hear me out, we believe doctors heal. And yet you ask the surgeon, when he makes the incision and inserts the staples, the stitches, what else can he do? Nothing. God alone heals. Now, granted, I love doctors. And when I hurt, I want one very near to me because they are a vital part of the process. My point being, it's just one way that we reject God's power and divine wisdom. Let me speak mathematically for a moment. And I won't speak very long because I don't have a lot to say about this. Anytime I get to math, I've got very little to say. What about compounding interest? You want to talk about the wonder and the majesty of the divine wisdom of God? 
Now, if you're below 40, you don't even probably know what compounding interest is yet. You don't, you're not worried about it. If you're over 40, your 401k is heavily dependent upon compounding interest, right? But we just accepted it. That's just the way things work. But why is that the way things work? Because God set them in motion. He established the divine principles and the divine truths that, did, uh, that, that, that state how things will work. That's called losing a word right in mid-sentence. He ordained that interest would be compounding. And that's a beautiful, glorious thing. But some people think mathematicians or economists invented this. Any other rejection of God's power or wisdom that is not seen because God is rejected is yet another way that the curse affects us when we reject His power and His wisdom. A second way that the curse affects us is that the curse means in sin we deny glory, we deny honor, we deny praise to God's holiness and to His righteousness. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 1 to say this, beginning in verse 21, 22, and 3. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the glory of the Creator for things that were created. This effect of the curse is flagrantly displayed when we begin to redefine morality. And what the Bible says is right and wrong, we go, eh, I don't know. I don't know if I like that or not. We honor or we praise things that God calls an abomination. We celebrate unrighteousness instead of righteousness or self-righteousness instead of God's righteousness. And so we deny Him glory, we deny Him honor, we deny Him praise for His holiness and His righteousness. It's interesting, sometimes we only think in terms of what we contradict about God so that we oppose it. So if we see God's righteousness and go, no, that's not right, we would think something else. But you know, it's also true just to deny God's glory by being silent. To say nothing. When something or someone is worthy of that glory being said about them. Right? Yes. The third effect that curse has is that the curse means in sin we accuse God when we fail to confess Him. Excuse me, we accuse God as a liar when we fail to confess Him as God, as Creator as sustainer, as sovereign, as savior, as Lord who alone is worthy. 1 John 1.10 goes on to say, If we say we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar, and his word is not in us. You see, this effect of the curse probably appears most frequently In each and every occurrence when we forsake the confession of our own sin. You see, not to confess sin in your life is to accuse God with each individual incident that He is a liar. 
That's heavy. That's hard, friends. But this is the reality of what sin looks like in our life. You see, curse means completely forsaking God through sin in every way. And this is why sin divides. It's why it deceives us. It's why it damages us and why it destroys us. Everyone that sins encounters God's curse against sin. Paul helps us understand God's curse by demonstrating how Jesus breaks this curse. He explains the curse by explaining how the righteous live by faith when he states, I do want you to take your Bibles if you have them this morning and turn with me to Galatians 3. Because this is where we're going to see how Jesus, as God and man, bears our curse that we might receive his righteousness and enjoy life with God. Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to see three lessons about the law and God's curse. Here's the first lesson we're going to see in Galatians 3.10, that all who rely on the law live under God's curse. Let me read Galatians 3.10 for us. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed to be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. All who rely on the law live under God's curse. It doesn't mean that you don't believe the law. But rather to rely on or to live by the law means this. That you trust that your performance in obeying the law satisfies the demand of of the law. And what is the demand of the law? That you should obey every one of them. You see, God's curse on sin includes any who rely on their performance of the law. And Paul cites Deuteronomy 27 26 that we just read. Cursed, he says. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. In and do them. You see, the law demands what? Perfect performance. And it condemns anyone who breaks any single part of the law as being guilty of breaking all of the law. So relying on the law places a person under sin's curse, either through sinful indulgence or through self-righteousness. By saying the law said to do this and you didn't do it, so you did wrong, that's sinful indulgence. Or the law says do this and you did it and you believe because you did it, it will satisfy the law's demand upon you. And the law says that's not right. Because if you're going to satisfy the law, you must satisfy every one of the law in order to satisfy all of the law. Or by breaking any one of the laws, you will be guilty of breaking all of them. Cursed, friends means that we're exiled from God. R.C. Sproul, a theologian of our day, explains our separation from God because of sin when he says this, that the ultimate covenant curse is exile. Separation from God. And since God's saving presence was felt most powerfully during the old covenant within the borders of the promised land, exile was a spiritual curse. For exile is banishment from the Lord's place. Of blessing. You see, sin separates us from God because God has cursed 
all sin. But what did Jesus do? He was forsaken by God, banished from God's presence when he became our curse to bring us back into fellowship with God. That means this, friends, that relationship with God only comes by trusting in the curse-bearing work of Jesus. Relationship with God only comes by trusting in the curse-bearing work of Jesus. This is why we say Christianity holds to Christ Jesus exclusively in order to go to heaven or to get to God. When we release Christ as the only way to get to God, we've just given up the very crux of our faith. So the exclusivity of Christ must confront the plurality of the many ways to God that the world purports in our day and in our time. The second lesson that Paul teaches us is in verses 11 and 12 of Galatians 3. He goes on to say this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather the law, uh, excuse me, rather the one who does them shall live by them. He quotes again the Old Testament twice actually. Here's the second lesson. No one is justified before God by the law. Listen, I have bad news for you today. If you believe your performance for God will be enough to satisfy God. Paul says that the law says to you and to us, no one will be justified by God because of their performance in the law. You cannot do enough to get to God. The good news is you don't have to. That's what Christ has done for us. You see, righteousness only comes by faith in Jesus. And what does he do? He quotes a prophet, Habakkuk 2.4, to say this, that the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul creates a conflict for us. He says that the law says you cannot get to God even by uh, uh, obeying the law because if you stand guilty of any one of it you stand guilty of all of it but he also says this that the righteous shall live by faith that perfect adherence to the law was never the path to begin with that faith in Jesus Christ a relationship with God has always been the intent and the heart of God and righteousness only comes by believing in Jesus Christ. You see, the law is not of faith, but rather it's doing that is expressed in action. And so he cites Leviticus, some of the deepest of the law, I might add, to teach this lesson. And the law reveals, or the law's command reveals, that no one has life because no one has perfectly obeyed the law. When you think about the law, here's what you should understand it's saying to you. If you want to rely on the law, if you want to live by the law, then you must do them. You must do all of them. You must do them all the time. And you must always do them perfectly. That's the demand of the law. And that's why he says no one lives by the law. Because the law brings death when it simultaneously shows God's holiness and righteousness and our sinfulness. Friends, hear me. You cannot live by the law because the law does not give life. Truth be known, you don't want the law. Because if you get what you deserve, which is what the law will give you, you don't want it. 
just like you get pulled over on the side of the highway and the law says you broke it, here's what you get. You don't want it. You don't want what the law says you could deserve. Because what does it say about a man who is a lawbreaker in our passage for today? He deserved execution. And hanging on a tree demonstrated that. Keep that with you for a moment. We'll come back to it. The third lesson brings us full scale to our full circle to our passage today. Galatians 3.13. Paul, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The law curses us because God has cursed sin. And Paul uses our passage today to teach us this. The third lesson he says is that Christ becomes a curse for us to redeem us from God's curse. And he cites Deuteronomy 21-23 to establish his point. God cursed the one who breaks the law and deserves to hang on a tree in condemnation. The one who hangs on a tree is cursed. Why? Because he's a lawbreaker. That's why he's there in the first place. And God cursed all who curse him through sin. And so when you sin, you live as though God does not matter or exist. And so here's what what we need to walk away in these lessons. Not only of understanding God's curse against sin, but also understanding how Christ becomes the curse bearer so he can redeem us from the curse of the law. All law breaking is cursed by God. Sin is what hangs men on trees, friends. And every man who sins deserves to hang on a tree. God didn't dismiss his curse. The gospel is not God just decided that was a bad idea and so he's just going to throw all that away and be done with it. No, God's eternal wisdom and power existed from all eternity past. And it is infused into every word that he has given to us in the Bible. So what is he saying to us? God could not dismiss his curse because he would have to deny himself the very reason he executed the curse in the beginning. Friends, the law is right. This means that because of sin, are you ready? God is your biggest problem. God is your biggest problem. Because God is the one who said all who sin cursed. But here's what I want you to hear today. God is not only your biggest problem, He's your only hope. He is your only hope. Before you turn away from God and you look to every other voice that this world offers, understand this. No voice in this world, no solution, no proposition, no theory, no philosophy, nothing in this world can solve your problem with God except for God Himself. That's what God's curse means for you and I. 
what I'm going to present to you in the next few moments is how God has taken care of our curse problem. I'm going to ask you to trust in God as your only hope in response to God being your biggest problem. While we were cursed in sin, John 3.16 says, God sent His only begotten Son to become the curse for us knowing that he would have to completely forsake to banish his own son so that he could reach out to sinners like you and I and welcome us home. And that's what he did. That's what John 3.16 is all about. That's what 2 Corinthians 5.21 states. For our sake he made him who knew no sin to become sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, becomes our redemption. He removes our pain and He removes our shame from sin so that He can restore to us the glory of value of life. You see, that's why God created us. That's what God created us to do as we see in Genesis 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden. And sin stole that. It it destroyed that. But when Christ comes, He redeems us. He was set forth as the redemption, Paul says. He's redeemed us from the curse that we might bear the glory God intended in creating us. Redeemed, friends, means that Christ restores God's glory value to your life. And what Paul does in Galatians is that he uses the Old Testament to show that not even the law itself claims to give life. That no person should rely on the law to save them or their performance of the law, but rather we should only look to the one to whom the law points, and that's Jesus Jesus Christ. See, the reason reason that this is a difficult message is because it's heavy information. It's hard, friends. You take any serious stance towards this and you just begin to feel the weight of what sin really is settling in upon you and the weight that it brings. But it remains essential for Christians to understand the salvation that we've been given in Jesus Christ. And listen, I want you to know what this curse means and I want you to know that it is important. But I'm not laboring today just to grow your intellect. I'm not laboring today just to to increase your storehouse of knowledge. Rather, I want you to understand that God didn't just do some simple maneuver so we can all feel better about this, but He sent His Son to deal with the only problem that separated you and I from Him, that He might become our hope and our answer in Christ Jesus. God has not dealt lightly with sin, and neither should we. He is righteous, and He is holy, and He has satisfied His holiness in the cross of Jesus Christ. And sin is damning eternally upon us, but praise God, He's made a way that eternal damnation would be removed from us. 
I don't want you walking through the city this week having nothing better to say to someone lost in their sin and hopeless. Well, God help you because I can't help you any more than that. I want you to know, no, Christ bore your curse and he can remove that condemnation if you'll only trust in him. That's why Paul's teaching these things. That's why we spend time. Jesus bore our curse that we might receive his righteousness and enjoy life with God. Friends, I'm laboring for you today to receive the righteousness of Christ in God. And I want you to take that heavy yoke of sin off today, however it may be found. And I want you to take on the light yoke of Jesus Christ that is joy, that is peace, that is love, that is righteousness, and that is life for you. I promise you, it is the life you're looking for, whether you knew what it was called coming in or not. I want to illustrate today's message in the same way Jesus illustrated it, I believe. Deuteronomy 21, beginning in verse 15, 16, 17, talks about the law of the firstborn. We looked at that three weeks ago. The firstborn is do their inheritance. After that, it talks about the law of the prodigal child, the rebellious child, right? And if a child is rebellious and cannot be controlled by mom and dad, what do we talk about? It may not be the first passage of Scripture we would go to to instruct in Christian discipline in parenting. But nonetheless, the law says mom and dad should take that rebellious child to the city gates and to the elders and if he is found guilty he should be stoned to death because disobeying the authority of mom and dad is equal to disobeying and denying the existence of God it is a penalty worthy of death and then we have this curious law cursed is a man who is hanged on a tree How are we to understand these laws? Well, we have some insight from Jesus himself, not only from Paul who quotes them and shows us how Christ becomes our curse bearer, but Jesus himself uses these laws to illustrate the gospel, to teach the gospel. In Luke chapter 15, he's in a room full of people. And in this room full of people, listen to how Luke sets it up. Luke 15 verses 1 and 2 says this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. Anytime Luke uses the phrase tax collectors and sinners, it is the worst of the worst of their social strata. Hated by all. That's what he's saying. The worst sinner fathomable in your mind. Luke says they were pursuing Jesus because they wanted to be near to him. Verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is about to tell a story about the gospel to a room full of people. And in this room, he's got the worst of sinners. And then he's got Pharisees and scribes. You know who they are in the biblical day? They are the most learned, educated of all the religious. They're on the highest social strata possible in that day and time what Luke is saying to us is that everybody is in the room and here's what Jesus begins to say to them he says there was a father that had two sons 
And the younger son comes to the father. Have you heard this before? The parable of the prodigal son? The young son comes to the father and he says to him, I want all of my inheritance. I plan to leave and go live the way I want to live because I don't like the way that I have to live under your rules and in your house. And what does the father do? The father says, okay. So he gives him his inheritance and the younger son leaves and goes to a faraway land and he squanders all of his money and he finds he has, when he has no money, he has no friends. When he has no money, he has no pleasure. When he has no money, he has nothing. He finds himself at the bottom of a pig pit, dirtier than the animals himself trying to take care of him. And all of a sudden, a thought crosses his mind. The servants at my father's house live better than I do. I'll go home, ask my father for forgiveness, and just tell him, I don't even want to be a son. Just make me a servant, and that will be better than the life I have here. And so the story goes that the son came home, and, and while he was still a long way off, that's the prepositional phrase that starts the sentence. The father, who by the verbiage of the way the author writes, gives us the idea, the understanding, that this was a regular, repeated pattern he was waiting and watching. And this son who was dead appeared on the horizon. And he went running after him. And the closer he got, the more confirmed that it was his son. His dead son was alive. And he throws his arms around him and his son begins to apologize. He says, shut up, don't ruin a good thing. And he just keeps hugging him and going, I'm so glad you're home. He didn't really tell him that. That's just my translation. And he says, come home, come home. He comes back and he tells the servants, stop doing what you're doing. Kill the fattened calf. We're having a party, a feast, a celebration. My son, that was what? That was dead is now alive. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Why was his son dead? Because what do you do with a rebellious child? You take them to the city gates. and You give them to the elders. And the elders find that the accusation against them is correct. And they stone them to death. Can you imagine how offended the Pharisees must have been? That father's not a good follower. He didn't take his son to the city gates. He gave him his inheritance. He should have never done that. The law says he should have been taken to the gates and he should have been stoned for his rebellion. But why was he not? Because that father's a weak man. He's a weakling. He gave him his inheritance and he put the whole family at risk and he just let him go off. But listen, in his banishment, he was as good as dead to that family. That mom and dad thought he would never see that rebellious son again because he had a lot of money and he wanted nothing to do with them. When he left, he was as good as dead. He was banished from the family. So when he came home, the father said what? My son who was dead is now alive. And a party broke out because this son had come home. But there was another son. The other son was the firstborn. 
And the firstborn had been out in the field working all day, faithfully laboring, cultivating the fields to make sure that the crops got planted according to the calendar when they needed to be and that they were cared for and tended and watered and and nurtured in the way they needed to be so that the family would be provided for. And and he labored all day and, and, and then he comes in at the end of the day and they're having some kind of party that he knew nothing about. He's the firstborn. I mean, he's the right-hand man of dad. If anything's going to take place here, it needs to take place with me at the helm because I'm taking care of this place. And so he finds out from the servants, from the servants, why didn't dad come tell me? He finds out from the servants that, in fact, his younger brother who was dead has come home and is now alive. Well, big whoopty, I've been out in the field all day working as I have every day since he walked out of here with our inheritance risking the very worth and the provision of this family. And he was angry. And the father walks out and he says to him, son, what's wrong? And he looks at this man who's his father. But he says, every day of my life I've served you. Every day of my life I've done everything you asked. I didn't always do it perfectly, but I did it. I go out into that field every day and I break my back working for you. He comes to you he asks you for his inheritance and he goes and he squanders it and he ruins the, he ruins the reputation of this family. He ruins and, and puts at risk the provision of this family and he comes home and what do you give to him? A party. When did you ever throw a party for me? The father says to him, son, you've always been with me. I love you. All that I have is yours. You've lost nothing today. But your brother that was dead is now alive. Come in and celebrate. Can you imagine what this side of the room was thinking when Jesus said said that? Are you kidding me? The the rebellious sinner gets saved. There's really forgiveness for that depth of of indulgence of sin. And and, and the Pharisees sit there and go, no, there's not. He must be stoned to death because that's what the law says. And then when you've got the firstborn who gets what he deserves. What does the law say in Deuteronomy 15, 16, and 17 that the firstborn deserves? His rightful inheritance. What is Jesus saying to us about what the law provides for us? When you get everything that the law promises you and provides to you, it will not be that which satisfies you. You see, what happened to the firstborn was what he was rightfully due because of the law became embitterment and entitlement towards the Father. He had grown to love the gift more than the giver. That's why the law can't save you, friends. 
Because even if it does everything that it can possibly do for you, it will not give you life. But Jesus will. In that parable, it's interesting. I know why Jesus said that. Because a room full of Pharisees needed to understand they're invited to the party too. But their works will not get them in the threshold. It's like living at the doorstep of heaven all your life, only to find out in death you got a one-way ticket to hell. And my question for each of you today is this. What are you trusting? What are you trusting? Maybe some of you are far from God today. You don't know what to trust. You've lived your own way. You've made your own choices. You've decided that your way will be the right way regardless of what anyone else says. And you've realized it's separated you from God and you feel a distance away from God that you have no idea how you could ever span that distance and come home. But even your presence here today says, I'm, I would hope, against all hope, that there might be some way God would receive me. And because Jesus bore the curse of sin for you, God's waiting and watching for you. He wants to see you come home. He waits to throw His arms around you. There is no distance. There is no separation from God where you can be today that God will not welcome you home and bring you to life with Him. If you are far from God today, I want to invite you because of what Jesus has done to come home. To come home. But if you're here today and you wouldn't say, I'm not far from God. I'm right next to Him. I'm around a lot of religious things. I go to church all the time. And when I say religious, I don't even mean in a bad way. I have a lot of Christian friends and I do a lot of the right things. I just feel like God doesn't pay off for me sometimes. He doesn't give me what I think I ought to be due. He doesn't provide to the extent that I think He ought to provide for me. And you know, it, it causes me some problems with God sometimes. Friends, what I want to say to you is this. That no matter how hard you try, and no matter how well you perform, Relying on the law will never satisfy you with God. But it doesn't have to. Because the Father comes out to you this morning. He assures you of His love. Not for what you can produce. Not for what you uh, have learned to be most efficient in or most effective at. Not because of what you've done. But He loves you because you are you. And your invitation this morning is this. Will you come in? Will you come in? I want to invite the worship team to come back. They're going to lead us through a time of response. And can I give you just one brief way as they return to know... Am I like the rebellious son or am I like the firstborn? <laughs> you know, the older brother that feels entitled. Listen, one way you can know that, that you're leaning more towards the older brother syndrome 
The entitlement towards God is this. That church becomes a chore for you. A chore. Church and the things of church, it's just another to-do item on your task list. You know, it's just, it's just like I've got more to do for God. And you think that it costs you more to expend the energy to do it than it does provide the joy in life for you in it. And it always returns to the same statement for you when church is a chore. Just get it done. Friends, if that's you today, the invitation for you is you need to come in. You're living right on the doorstep of heaven, but you don't want anything to do with the threshold. And the Father comes out to you today and says, place your faith in me. It's not about perfectly performing the law. It's about relating to me by faith in Jesus Christ. The righteous shall live by faith. There's not a Christian in the room who's not daily tempted by that very entanglement right there. Every one of us. Now for the one who maybe is struggling in rebellion. Here's one way you can know if that's you. You calculate every aspect of church and measure it against your personal pleasure meter. Did I like the songs they sang today? I don't know that I like the way they did it. I think I could do that a little better. I think somebody else could do it a little better. You know, he said a lot of good things, but I don't really think he just spoke to me today. You know, I, I wish that when they talked about things that they could just say some things that were maybe just, you know, here's what I need to hear today. It's all calculated. And it's all calculated on the ruler of me. Did it measure up? And at the end of the day, all of the miscalculations always return you to this. It's just not doing it for me anymore. The invitation for you, friends, come home. You're straying farther and farther from God. Where will your faith, placed in Christ, as your curse bearer, what is it calling you? How is it leading you today to respond to the Lord? Will you say yes to Him? Jesus bore our curse. Not so we could just be better people, not so we could know the right things, but so that we could receive His righteousness and enjoy life you bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for you and then we're going to worship. Friends, if you find yourself at a place today where you know you need to come home, where you know you need to turn and come in, and you don't know how God's going to take the entitlement and the bitterness out of your heart, you don't know whether He's going to receive you as a son or, 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 or reject you just as a, a slave servant, but you're hoping let me say to you today with full assurance, as he has done it for one, he will do it for any who trust in him. He will receive you when you come home. He will receive you today when you come in. He's never rejected one. He'll not start with you. And so I'll be here at the front, and I'm just going to ask you, if, if you know God's speaking to you today and leading you to place your faith in Christ, to become a Christian, I want to invite you to come. Let us pray for you. Let us encourage you. No one's going to point you out or do anything embarrassing. If you need to come to the altar and pray, Christian, 
because you find your heart straying in one direction or the other. Come, bow before the Lord. Place your faith squarely and only in Christ. Lord Jesus, help us today to hear, to hope, to have faith in you. In Jesus' name, let's stand together and respond to the Lord. And you come as the Spirit directs.